For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he take it, he break which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. The lesson that was read to you from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first chapter seeks to correct abuses that had taken place at the Lord's table. And what we are being admonished by the Apostle Paul through the power of the Holy Spirit then and now is that to take the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is a supremely serious matter. For it means our identification to him, with him in his death against sin and in our own willingness to live lives that are crucified unto self and lives that are yielded over to his lordship. In thinking about this today and the cleansing which all of us need, my mind and heart always goes back to that 51st Psalm, which I suppose of all of the Psalms is the one that most of us have turned to for words of confession when we have sought to offer to God a plea for the forgiveness of our sins. The circumstances of the writing of that psalm are well known to any good student of the Bible. You will remember that it was written at a time when David had sinned terribly against God. The key part of that psalm is, wash me, wash me. Because in Scripture, that, of course, which is dirty and defiling needs to be washed away. And it is also true that when we come to the Lord's Supper, we want to be sure that we have been washed and that we may come rightly to that feast. How may I be assured of that? I've printed things in the bulletin which I thought would be helpful. Now then, to look back into David's own life, there is in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 11, the story of what happened to David. And it came to pass in the, in the year at the time when kings go forth to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Reba. But David stayed behind at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired of the woman, and one said, is this, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, 
And she came in unto him, and he lay with her. And she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived, and sent and told David, and said, I am with child. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did, and how the people did, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him food from the king's table. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto, thy, unto his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down unto thine house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark in Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. And shall I go into mine house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul livest, I will not do this thing. And David said unto Uriah, Tarry thou here also today and tomorrow, and I will let thee depart. And when David had called Uriah, he did eat and drink before him and made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed, but Uriah went not down to his own house. And so it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter and said, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire from him that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass when Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew that valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab. And there fell some of the people of the servants of David. And Uriah the Hittite died also. And Joab sent word unto David. So the messenger went and came and showed David all that Joab had sent him. And the messenger said unto David, Surely the men prevailed against us, and they came out into the field. And we went even unto the entering in of the gate. And they shot from the wall thy servants, and some of thy, the king's servants are dead. And thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David said unto the messenger, Thou shalt say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sword de devoureth one as well as another. Make the battle more strong, and overthrow the city, and encourage thyself. And when the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. And he came unto him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, and the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought up and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup, and was as a child to him. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared not to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man. But he took the poor man's lamb. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die, 
and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel and delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives. And if that had been too little, I would more and more have given thee. Why hast thou despised the commandment of God and done this evil in thy sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and thou hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and thou hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me and taken to wife taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbors. What thou didst secretly, I will do before all of Israel and before the sun. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against God. And Nathan said unto David, And the Lord hath put away thy sin. Then following this, David went into the temple, and he placed upon himself sackcloth and ashes, and he wept before God, and he lamented his sins which he had committed. And then he offered up that which we have read from the 51st Psalm. Then he cried out for God to wash him from his sin. The terrible thing about the day in which we live is that we've lost a consciousness of sin. Even Carl Menninger, the great psychiatrist, out in Kansas, has written a book entitled, Whatever Happened to Sin? It's a well-named book, and he has raised an important question. Because when we think little of sin, we will also think little of the Savior. This thing which David had done at the very height of his career when he should have been with all of the power that he had such a great witness for God. He descends to the lowest depth. And the terrible thing about sin is that sin can never be committed just and hurt one person alone. It always starts a chain reaction. It hurts one person, it hurts another person, and it hurts another person. Any fool who read the newspapers during the Watergate affair could see what happens when you start to cover up sin. You can't cover it up. It does not cover up. It keeps on going, and it keeps on hurting. And the only proper prayer for a sinner is that first prayer of David's in that 51st Psalm, Wash me. We need to be cleansed from our sin. This is the reason that we come to the Lord's table. We come to it because it reminds us of the great price that God prayed, paid to take away our sin. That hymn that we used to sing, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. David, David descended from one sin to the other. First there was only laziness, then there was lust, then there was intrigue, 
then there was lying, then there was getting the man drunk, then there was killing him, and all of this time he was supposed to be the greatest man in all of the nation of Israel. And so God brings down upon his head great calamities, and he bewails his sin, and he seeks from God forgiveness. God cleansed David as he prayed. He cleansed his inner man. Do you notice noticed in that prayer, restore unto me the joy of my salvation? What's wrong when you don't get any joy out of coming to church? David had written many of those psalms. What's wrong when you're no longer moved by the scriptures? When prayer no longer means anything? Is it that we have lost a sensitivity to sin? When we are born again, the Holy Spirit comes to abide in us forever. But when we sin against God, we break that fellowship and the joy of our salvation goes away and we need the restoration. There is no cheap forgiveness. And there is no cheap confession here. David speaks of his bones as having been broken and of his joy having been dried up within him and he cries out to God for mercy. He is at one and the same time the greatest saint and the greatest sinner that you'll meet in the book of the Psalms because he seeks God's presence. Wash me, says David. I can remember so well that hymn that we used to sing, Lord Jesus, I long to be perfectly whole. I want thee forever to live in my soul. Break down every idol, cast out every foe. Lord, wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Lord Jesus, thou knowest I patiently wait. Come now and within me a new heart create. To those who have sought thee, thou never saidst no. Now wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And so David cried, wash me. If you look into the book of Isaiah, chapter 1 and verse 16, you will find the commandment, wash you. We are told to wash ourselves, to put away from ourselves the thing that defiles us. If David had been about his duties as a good general, he would never have fallen into the sin that came to him, but he was not. We need to be constantly at our prayers. We need to be constantly doing the works of love and mercy which God intends for those who represent the Lord Jesus to do. And if we do not, then we set a trap for ourselves and we begin to deteriorate from the inside. And so the second point I want to make is wash you. First, David says, wash me. And next, wash you is a commandment that God says, search about your heart and see if there is any wicked way there. And if there is, cast that thing away. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Paul writes these words, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us wash ourselves from all defilement of flesh and of spirit. A flesh would be like the prodigal son going into the far country, and wasting his substance in evil living. Of spirit would be like the elder brother 
who is angry when his brother comes home again and who breaks the joy of that family's circle. So we are told here that we are to wash ourselves from sins of the flesh and sins of the spirit, perfecting ourselves in holiness in the fear of God. This is important for us to remember. There is a third figure of washing that occurs in the Bible that I wish to call yourselves your, your attention to. And that's in the upper room. That night in which Jesus instituted this sacred feast, on the way to that upper room, the disciples were so unspiritual as to be arguing about which one would be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus knew what they were talking about. And when they got inside, it was customary for people to recline when they uh, went to a meal. And you reclined with your feet next to the ne next person's face. And so everyone was careful to see that their feet were washed when they entered into a door. A servant usually came, or if there were no servants, then the youngest one would do it. But they had been arguing about which one would be the greatest. And so when they got there, Peter said, must have said, well, someone ought to wash our feet. And John said, well, I'm not going to do it. Maybe Thomas said, well, I'm not going to do it either. And then Jesus laid aside his robe and picked up a towel and girded about himself and poured water into a basin and started to go from person to person, washing their feet. And Peter, Peter who always had a speech to make when Jesus came to Peter, Peter said, Lord, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus said, unless I wash your feet, you can have no part with me. And then, typical as he was, Peter said, N -n -n then, Lord, not my feet only, but my head and my hands and all of me. Now then, this means that we are to wash one another. When Paul was in prison in Rome, he wrote a little letter called Philemon. And in that letter, he speaks of a man named Onesimus who often refreshed me. Christians ought to wash one another's feet, said Jesus to those in the upper room. If I, your master and Lord, have done this thing to you, then you ought to wash one another's feet. That means that we should inspire each other in the things that are holy, in the things that are acceptable in God's sight that we ought to be encouraging one another in the things of God, not irritating one another, not standing in another's way, but seeking to wash away the thing that would hurt somebody else, to cleanse the wound. You remember that jailer who beat Paul and Silas? You remember the earthquake came, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And that man believed that night, and he was saved. And after he was saved, he set about washing the stripes that he had inflicted or had inflicted upon the backs of Paul and Silas. Stripe washing. I went the other night to Spartanburg. And I spoke to, in the First Baptist Church,
Dr. Alistair Cameron Walker is the minister of that great church. The closest thing to a true revival meeting that I ever saw in all my life was over 25 years ago when I saw Alistair Cameron Walker preaching in a church in Texas. I'll never forget it. I remember how one night that man came out to preach and they had sung all the hymns and taken up the offering and had the prayer and the special music. And he stood to speak and he stopped and said, something is wrong in this church. And I don't know what it is, but I can't preach and the Spirit of God can't work until it's cleared up. And I'm going to kneel right here and pray until God straightens it out. And Alistair Walker knelt there, and he prayed. And there was great quietness and embarrassment. It was an awkward moment, a big church, bigger than this one. And finally, an old man stood up shaking like a leaf with his voice quavering. And he began to confess that he had been maligning another member of that church and that he wanted that brother's forgiveness and that he knew that his sin stood between that and the blessing of God in that place. And then in a moment, another person got up and spoke a word of confession. And it was public to the whole church. And then the minister preached a very brief sermon that could not have been more than 10 minutes. He gave an invitation, and it seemed to me that everyone in the church went forward. One man who had stolen a car years before over in Dallas wrote a letter to the police department and went there and gave himself up. Now that's when the Spirit of God moves. It's when there is not only a repentance for sin, but some decisive action is taken to make things right. And so this is what we are told here. This is important. Wash me from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. And if I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now then, how do we come to the Lord's Supper in view of all of this? We come to the Lord's Supper because it is for sinners. And because he means for us, to come to this feast, to take it as a sign that we belong to Jesus. In the Reader's Digest a few years ago, a man wrote a story of what actually happened to him. He was sitting in a railroad coach next to a young man who was obviously depressed and deeply nervous. This young man revealed to him that he was a convict and that he had just gotten out of prison and he was returning home. He had brought shame on his family, and they seemed to have forgotten him. They had written him only a letter now and then, but he had hoped somehow that he might be forgiven. And to make it easier for him, for them, he wrote a letter home telling them that he was going to be released and what day he would be coming home. And he said that if they wanted him back in the family, would they please put up a signal for him? that when the train passed their farm on the outskirts of the town, if his family had forgiven him, they were to put a white ribbon and an old apple tree near the railroad tracks. And if they didn't want him back, 
Then they were to do nothing, and he would simply stay on the train and pass on by. As the train approached the town, the young man couldn't bear to look out the window. His companion changed places with him, and suddenly a great sight came into view. He took the young man's arm, and he pulled him over to the window, and he said, There it is. Look. And there was a whole sheet on top of the apple tree. And there were white ribbons tied every place. And the man said at that instant a miracle took place. The young man became different. You could see it happening right in front of your eyes. And I felt as if I had witnessed a miracle, and perhaps I had. Here is a white ribbon. Here is a white cloth that God put here. Underneath that cloth represent the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, telling us that sin is a terribly serious matter, that it is to be forsaken, but that when we forsake it, we may take this feast and know that we are truly forgiven. If David could be forgiven of his adultery, his lying, and his murder, then God can forgive you. And not only can God forgive you, but just as really as you can pick up the little piece of bread and touch it, and just as really as you can take the fruit of the vine and taste it, just that really God can create within you a new heart, and you can go out of the chapel today closer to God than you've ever been before, strengthened against sin, unworried and unconcerned about death, because you belong unto Christ the Redeemer. There is a